You're listening to Unscripted with Alex, a podcast that empowers young families to make choices that are best for them and their children. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Well, thank you for coming on my podcast. Thanks for having me. So for the listeners, Sarah is a very close friend of mine and I've known her my entire life nearly since we were little kids. Uh, You're going to share a bit of your story, but also your expertise. So you're a midwife and you're also a lactation consultant. Uh, So we're going to try and get through some of those common breastfeeding questions that might happen um, around the first, like starting breastfeeding, the early breastfeeding um, journey. But first, let's hear a bit of your story. So you've got two beautiful children. Tell us about the your first birth. Finn, he was my first, so he's almost six years old. And I had a beautiful pregnancy with him. The usual, you know, fatigue, sore feet, baby brain, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I was really, really excited about the birth. I was working at a birthing centre at the time, uh, providing continuity care with women. And I was just amazed by what I could, what I saw and witnessed in that time with those women. So it sort of gave me the strength and encouragement to go through with my own birth. Um, hopefully I wanted a water birth. That was the plan. Yeah. But also a lot of anxiety as well. From what you've seen over the years. Yeah, a, a lot. And I think looking back, I put so much pressure on myself to get that birth that I wanted and I didn't want any intervention and I was pretty fearful of it all, mm. um, medical intervention, especially, you know, you see the and the rates of intervention are pretty sky high. But luckily I um, had a beautiful birth. I um, woke up uh, one day before my uh, son's due date and it was around three in the morning with a few niggles and tightenings. Um, and I was just so excited. I was like, it's happening. But then I was like, settle down, Sarah. It might be a long journey. So let's just try and rest. So I tried to rest and lie down, but I was pretty damn excited. But I do remember I had like a show and then the tightening sort of intensified over the next few hours. So um, my husband set up the lounge area. We had a beautiful space. My music, my candles, um, my affirmations around me, the fit ball, um, it was all dark, which is what I wanted. Um, so it was just a beautiful space to be in. Uh, and it really set me off at a good start. So I just remained upright, but listened to my body when it needed a rest. And I remember ringing my midwife and she was on a day off. <laughs> Typical. And, um, she was like, oh, you'll be, you'll be ages, you know, you're sounding, they're pretty red, like far apart, pretty sporadic. And I was like, okay, okay. And then I rang her back probably about two hours later and I was like, I can't breathe through them. They're pretty intense. And she was like, oh, go have a shower. You'll be right. (laughs) And I was like, okay. Um, so I hopped in the shower and I was just like, oh my gosh, I, I, it was pretty intense at that point you know, coming hard and fast. And I was like, oh my gosh, I th- no, I, I need to get going. This is, this is pretty in- insane. So then I remember, um, the car ride being like the worst part of my labor, like just sitting there. I had a tens machine, which I loved. Oh, did you? Yeah. That was a great distraction for me. But, um, I remember it was like the middle of the day and I had my glasses on and I was just like, just drive and get there. So what time was it by the time you left the house? Oh gosh, I can't remember. Probably like 11.30 or something yeah. like that at this stage. And it's a half an hour roughly or was oh, it longer? it was like 20 minutes. Okay. 
What do you mean? Not even, um, but it felt like a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. Especially when, so you've obviously tried to push it or you and your midwife try to push you as, um, you know, as far as possible to stay at home mm-hmm. for as long as possible. So those surges keep going and you don't want to get into early in case they stop That's and right. all of that stuff. So then you're at like your most intense mm-hmm. point when you get in that car. No wonder that felt like forever. Yeah. Yeah. So we get there and it's like the middle of the day and my colleagues are like, oh, Sarah, what are you doing here? And I was like, Ooh. and they're like, oh, oh, it's happening. And I was like, just feel the bath and get me in there. And so I went out, by the time I got there and um, my midwife came in on a day off, bless her, um, I was about eight centimetres, um, but he was, he was a little bit high up. So I think she was a little bit worried about that, but um, I was doing lots of upright positioning and using the TENS machine. And then as soon as the bath was filled, I jumped in and that was just amazing. Ah, mm. <sighs> really. Um, and so the room was all dark and I had my music. My husband was there, my midwife. It was all pretty amazing and special. Um, and it was pretty short, uh, shortly after I was in the bath where my body was pushing involuntarily and I was like oh gosh I need to try and stop this because I don't want to be pushing if I've got cervix there and then it it didn't feel like that long probably but I think it was about an hour or two in in the the whole time but um and she said oh I think I'm you know we can see your baby's head and I was like holy shit thank god (laughs) and then um my waters broke at that point you know that was intense that was probably yeah the most intense part but exciting um, and then I could hear her opening up the birth kit. You know, I knew what was going on in the background, but my eyes were closed the entire labour, even at oh, home. I just wanted to be really focused in, inside and just not distracted by anything going on. But, yeah, I remember hearing that specifically and being like, oh, okay. This it's happening. It's happening. She's like, oh, yeah, you can push now. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> so were you more um, – you said you didn't want to push if the cervix was there. So were you able to check yourself or were you getting them to No, check? I didn't even need them to check because there were so many outer signs that yeah. I was fully dilated. Um, so you were sort of more worried in your mind yes. that maybe it's there instead of trusting your body and yes. when it's saying push. You can't stop it. Well, because I'm a midwife, I know, like, even you know, in posterior labours, you know, you can get that early urge to push if baby's posterior. So you have to make sure, you know, you don't have to. Anyway, that's just my midwife brain that I needed to switch off in labor. Um, and my midwife was super good at that. She, she was amazing. Uh, so, yeah, when I got that, like, the all clear, essentially, it was pretty quick and uh, it was pretty amazing. Then brought my son up onto my chest and oh, it was God. beautiful. And I did, we didn't know we were having a boy, so that was pretty special. And what position were you in in the um, bath when you pushed? Um, like basically like all fours, like leaning like on the pillow and had, yeah, some nice open hips. And, and so when um, his head was out, was there much of a break between the head and the shoulders or did no. he just sort of all fly out? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's why I didn't tear. <laughs> I <just laughs> myself. Um, no, I can't, just can't remember. I think um, it was just a mere, like maybe a minute or so, and then the, the rest of the body was born, and my husband got his hands in there too, which was beautiful. And so he, the umbilical cord was long enough, you could get yeah. him up straight onto your chest. Straight up on my chest. And, and how long did you stay in the bath for then? Um, only a few minutes because I started to bleed a little bit. They were like a little bit worried that it might be a bit excessive, so they got me out, and then we laid down on the mat and just skin to skin with him and birth the placenta, 
And, um, yeah, and then they checked me out and I didn't tear anything. It was pretty amazing, pretty textbook, pretty insanely amazing. (laughs) I do remember you being very, very happy afterwards with how it all sort of went the way that you had hoped and envisioned and that's beautiful. And like you said, not every birth goes that way and (laughs) you know that the most. How did he feed? Did he latch on straight away? or So we did... um, yeah, obviously that uninterrupted skin to skin for a few hours. And within um, the first hour, we tried to, yeah, we got him onto the breast. I think the first feed was pretty okay, a bit shallow, so it hurt a little bit. I remember that. And um, being a midwife, I looked into his mouth and I was like, oh shit, he's got a tongue tie. Oh, you could tell straight <laughs> I away. Tell. So I tried not to worry about it because, you know, some babies do feed absolutely fine with tongue oh, ties. Okay. It's very much an individual sort of basis. Um, whether they need treatment or not. So, and then I was a bit hesitant the second feed. I remember like just feeling a little bit anxious about it, but we did some hand expressing and all of that as well to make sure that, you know, we're stimulating my supply enough. Did that tongue tie end up causing some troubles or? Yes. Okay. So what (laughs) what happened there? (laughs) Um, so it was around day five. I had my midwife appointment and, um, when I saw her, I showed her my breast and it had some redness on it. And I was like, oh, this is a bit weird. And she's like, oh, God damn, Sarah, you've got mastitis. And I was like, nah, 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 it'll be right, it'll be right. She's like, no, no, that's mastitis. And I was like, nah. <laughs> Denial. <laughs> no. Anyway, so, and then by the time we weighed him, he hadn't quite gained enough weight either. So that's an indication. Yeah, obviously he wasn't getting what he needed. And then my breasts were becoming you know, insufficiently drained and blocked and then mastitis occurred. Um, so then I had to then go through this huge process of triple feeding, which is breastfeeding, expressing and finger feeding. Yes, I've been there. It's so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's tough. That is the toughest. Mm-hmm. And lack of sleep and mm-hmm. cleaning all those tubes. Oh, all and parts. No, yeah. Oh my gosh. And so when you said the redness, um, just for the listeners, is, mm. it was redness on the breast tissue, on not breast around tissue. the nipple? Yeah, on yeah. the breast tissue. Okay. It was, yeah, just on the inner aspect, but it can occur in any area of the breast. Um, yeah, it's quite mild, but I didn't at that point have any other symptoms. But then the next day I remember I was feeling quite run down and a bit crap. Yeah, um, kind of like a fevery like flu. A, yeah, yeah. So symptoms can vary. Um, according to, you know, the extent of the mastitis. So some are quite mild and can remain at home with just a good plan in place, oral antibiotics and things like that. Um, Others will be admitted to hospital on IV antibiotics. That was me with my second Uh, and can be very unwell. Okay. Yeah. And so the tongue tie meant that he wasn't um, draining it completely and so they were getting blocked areas. So he was having a really difficult time to maintain a really nice deep latch, which you need, and um, causing nipple compression and damage there. So um, any damage to the nipple is obviously like a portal of entry for bacteria to get into the breast tissue. Okay, so that's where the risk is and that's where I got infective mastitis from. So when he was about one week of age, we took him to an amazing doctor in Perth and she um, performs phrenotomies. Um, is that the cutting? The cut, okay. When they cut the frenulum. Yeah, okay. and um, that was pretty awful to watch. It was very quick and she is incredibly amazing. Um, so we had complete trust in her. Um, but, yeah, he 
He screamed. And then as soon as it was done, put him straight onto the breast. Yeah. It's amazing how the breast can just fix, fix. things. Oh. So good. If in doubt, whip it out. <laughs> <laughs> that is so good. I love that take. And so how, how old was he when you did the... A week. A week old. Oh, gosh, of course, and your first little one, and no. you just don't want any pain to come to them. Of course, you would have been feeling a bit nervous about that. Yeah. And so how did you come to that decision that that was the, what you needed to do? Um, so, yeah, luckily I have access to some amazing lactation consultants where I birthed, and um, they helped identify that, you know, it was pretty significant and warranted to be, tra- warranted to be treated. Um, and then they also gave me a plan in place to make sure that, you know, we were adequately draining my breasts and giving him the right amount and things like that and balancing a plan that was sustainable because, like we said, triple feeding is just pure exhaustion. Yeah. I think we did it for nearly three months <clears throat> and I was exhausted. Three months. Yeah, it was a long time of doing it. Eventually we, we got there after uh, having a, me having a phone call with you yeah. and speaking with another friend of mine um, and we eventually got there. But, yeah, it, it's, it's a long journey. Oh, my God. Um, and so how was the recovery for Finn? The recovery itself was okay, but when I look back, it was such a um, – it was really difficult for me to adjust because I was – I, I was unaware at the time of how anxious I was okay, and how, because I was a neonatal nurse prior to becoming a midwife. So I'd worked with so many babies over the years. And I remember one night, when the night when I brought him home, looking at him next to me and I was like, I don't know how, I don't feel comfortable with this. Like no one's watching you while you sleep, you know, and I didn't know how for me to switch off. Okay. So, so you're, you're, you've been used to first working with the tiniest of tiny babies that have been born early, mm-hmm. but also then coming from a place where they've always been monitored and you've been yeah. the one always monitoring. But as mum, we can't do that. No. Even though as a midwife, I've visited hundreds of mothers, you know, and babies at home. But when it came to myself, it was like, oh my God. And then the anxiety kicked in. You know, like, what if this blanket goes over his face? What if this happens? What if this happens? So it was pretty uh, instant. Yeah, so I did find it really hard at first to adjust to sleeping with him. And plus, and then the lack of sleep kicked in with him because he wasn't a sleeper. Still isn't. (laughs) Um, Bless him. But that's who he is. And he was that way from the beginning. Yeah. He, um... You know, he woke up every what, hour and a half until he was mm. 18 months. Yeah. It's hard. And then because you're, yeah, you've, you're not sleeping, the anxiety gets worse and, um, you know, even depression during the day can get worse or pa- panic. And mm. So were you aware at the time that you were anxious? No. Did that was, take a while? It took or? a long time. I think I do remember seeing someone around probably when he was about 10 months or so. She was nice, but she sort of indicated that, I need to go on medication and instantly that just, I just put a wall up to her and I was like, nah, see ya. <laughs> I'm more of a holistic sort of person when it comes to things like that. So um, in hindsight, I pro- probably should have kept seeing her, but, um, you know, you know, don't know what you don't know. And I, um, I, I had, look, I had a beautiful, you know, beautiful experience. It was just a lot harder than I ever anticipated. 
Do you find yourself constantly reaching for sugary foods? It's no secret that eating too much sugar can wreak havoc on your gut health. Not only does it feed bad gut bacteria, but it can also cause inflammation and damage to the gut lining. Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol is here to help. Our simple four-week reset program is designed to remove triggers and unwanted microbes, supporting you through your sugar hangover and repairing the gut. So why wait? Start feeling better today with Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol. I mean, becoming a mummy is a lot harder than anybody anticipates, but I, I wonder, was there an aspect of you um, coming at it because you, you are a health professional and always having worked in that area, did you set an unrealistic expectation on yourself? hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Even with my birth, you know, yes, I was so adamant to get the birth that I wanted. Yeah. I was a bit insane in my pregnancy. I remember looking back, I remember going to like pregnancy Pilates, pregnancy aqua aerobics, doing my walking, you know, doing my antidote expressing from 37 weeks, doing this, doing that, like hill climbs and stuff when I was 38 weeks. Like, I was pretty gung-ho, <laughs> like, I will get this birth that I wanted. Yeah, I mean, that's a nice thing, though, because also being the first birth, you're so excited and you want to mm. fully dive into it. So there's that element as well. But, yeah, mm. when it becomes a pressure that you've put on yourself yeah. that um, can sometimes obviously not be helpful. And I think it's quite relatively common for somebody to reach out for help and that be the first response. Okay. Well, you need to go on medication. Mm -hmm. And that is such a bad place to start with Mm -hmm. a new person. It's building rapport, talking Mm -hmm. about other options because that happens. You put a wall up and then you don't get the help that you probably needed. And there's lots of other ways that help can look. It's not always just medication. So what led you to becoming a lactation consultant? I suppose it's this. (laughs) It was this. (laughs) So after I had Finn, I was just blown away with how much I didn't know about breastfeeding. I was just like, oh, and I used, I utilized the lactation consultants at the hospital. I think I saw them about eight times within the first 12 months for support. And it, <clears throat> they were just amazing. The help that they provided with me, will, you know, it will stay with me forever. I'm, I'm forever grateful to those women. And I thought to myself at that time, I was like, I want to be able to do this for women. And then it was literally a few months later, I started studying for my lactation consultancy. And oh, then, beautiful. Yeah. So then I did it the six months later. <laughs> it's an intensive course too. Mm, yeah. Um, but yes, lifesavers, I think when they come to your rescue like that, because it's, you know, for some women, breastfeeding is so easy and so like, it just happens. And then for others, it's such a challenge and it's your source of food and your everything, not just food, but it's your everything to that baby. And that's why from a mum's point of view, it's so like, oh, if I can't Mm -hmm. do this, what do I do? And we need lots of support and coaching and constant support and coaching, I think, to get Mm -hmm. that. A lot. We need so much more support in the community than we have. Women out there are quite desperate for the help. Yeah. Before we continue, we're going to get into a few of those common questions and pick your brain Mm -hmm. from um, a lactation consultant point of view. Um, Just so we don't breeze over it, we did mention you have a second child. (laughs) So Chloe. (laughs) Chloe was born at 
25 weeks mm-hmm. um, gestation. Is that the right mm-hmm. terminology? So that is a quite a big event, a big story, mm-hmm. and we're going to probably do another podcast where we can dive into that mm-hmm. and give it the respect that it deserves. But how was your feeding with Chloe? Because that would have been a completely different experience. Again, yeah. you've got this little, little, little one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, she was born at 25 weeks. So she was weighing 770 grams. When she was born, um, looking at her now, you would not be able to tell. She's just an amazing um, little girl and a real fighter. Um, lots of sass. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, we had a we had a very challenging four months in the NICU uh, at King Edward. Um, but we got through. We got through it and she came out fully breastfed and we breastfed up to two years, which was my goal. Uh, it was very difficult initially, very, very difficult because she had to be on, you know, a lot of respiratory support for such a long time in the neonatal intensive care unit and, um, navigating that whilst breastfeeding in an open environment with monitors going off all around you. And you're supposed to, you know, remain this calm center for your baby and to get that beautiful bonding going with your little one. And also because they are so small, you know, they have such tiny little mouths to be able to latch onto the breast. And because I had such a huge milk supply, my breasts were huge. Could have fed the whole NICU. <laughs> so yeah, we, they had amazing lactation consultants in the NICU as well. It didn't matter that I was a lactation consultant myself because I was a mother and I did not have my lactation brain switched on at that time. I actually remember asking one of the LCs, I'm like, I need you to show me how to use a pump and tell me how often I need to pump. I was so not there, you know? (laughs) So it doesn't matter who you are or what experience you have and knowledge, you often just need those basic information and guidelines (laughs) just to get you through, especially in stressful situations. I was going to say, with everything that you've got going on, Mm. and like you said, you need to be a mum. You don't want to have your your other brain on, your LC brain on. So how did she get on the yeah. nipple being so little so it was around 29 30 weeks we started just doing little breastfeeding experiences where she would sort of nuzzle next to my breast and sort of have a little lick and a smell and a you know a little play around because she couldn't quite have that coordinated suck swallow reflex at that point um but it was still so beautiful to have her there and i had to express before otherwise i would have drowned her <laughs> 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 and then when she uh, was around 32 weeks, I started using these nipple shields that would help. Um, they're like a little silicon umbrero, a sombrero hat that oh, go yeah. over to, on your nipple. I'm sure you know what nipple shields are. Um, they essentially act like a non-slip mat for a baby who needs some assistance to maintain a vacuum at the breast. And so that's exactly what it did. And it made it easier for her to hang on and feed. So we would do that a few minutes at a time initially. And then as she got bigger, we would just gradually, slowly increase the amount of time she could spend at the breast. And um, she had a nasogastric tube in because, you know, she would just fatigue so quickly, even like a five-minute breastfeed, she'd be done. (laughs) So, yeah, it was a very, very, very long process to get her to be fully breastfed. But um, by the end of her journey at the NICU, she was fully breastfed. I think at night she had one bottle of my express breast milk just so she didn't fatigue too much. Mm -hmm. But essentially by the time she got home, we did that for maybe 
a few nights and I was like, no, she can do it. Yeah. And I um, did all breastfeed. So, but it, it is a really hard thing to juggle all that, like I said, all of the equipment and everything. And sometimes you'd get her there and something would pull off her face or out of her nose and you'd have to readjust and help her on. And so, yeah, it was a tricky one. And, you know, like I said, I had a lot of experience working with babies with all this respiratory equipment before, but I can imagine a new mother who has not had this exposure to be completely overwhelmed. Yeah. And, and especially can imagine if it was their first and all uh, of that. Exactly. And, and like I said, the NICU is so open. Mm. Um, I had obviously a lot of, con- I didn't care. I was like, I'm breastfeeding. I don't, I'll do it anywhere in the middle of you know, standing on my head, I'll, I'll, I'll feed anywhere. Um, but yeah, it would be quite confronting for a new mum who hasn't had experience breastfeeding. Yeah. Yep. And then, yes, just being so exposed. And yeah. Because, you know, being out. relaxed is very important to try and facilitate that oxytocin, you know, mm-hmm. surge to get your nice letdowns happening. So if you're really stressed and anxious, it's much harder to get that you know process happening. Yeah. So how important is that first feed then where they do that little crawl and they try and get up onto there? How important is that first feed? Yeah, it's it's really, really important um, for so many reasons. So ideally, we want your baby, as soon as it's been born, to be brought up onto your chest and remain there for a good few hours with warm blankets over the top um, so they can just be skin to skin with you and you can get that first attachment going within the first hour that's the most important thing that it's called the golden hour for quite a few reasons because research has shown that women who have had a breastfeed within that first hour have a much more significant milk supply at six weeks Ah, so it does something to stimulating that message like right we've had a baby our placenta has been detached now let's go we need to get things going. Wow, okay. Feeding. So, yeah, skin to skin and then the beautiful baby breast crawl. So if, you ever, if you're not sure of it, you can honestly Google it and you can see so many beautiful videos of it happening because it's hard to believe until you see it. So, yeah, babies have so many instincts to be able to find the breast and feed on their own. So if you sort of recline back at birth and allow the baby that time, they will gradually work their way down to the breast. That's so amazing awesome. how it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I watched a video of it prior to mine. And it's hard to try and get that experience yourself as well when you're yeah. in after having the baby because people want to get in your zone. <laughs> get your hands people. off. <laughs> I want to watch this crawl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <baby> crawl. <laughs> so that's a good point. Some of them actually won't. You, might, you will need to help them on there and that's fine yeah but it is so good for their instincts and reflexes to get going to do that feed and yeah definitely within that hour and another really important thing to consider is where you give birth okay Okay, because you know a lot of places will take the baby regardless if it's medically warranted or not a lot of them will just quickly rub the baby you know do a quick check and bring the baby back to you Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you don't want them to be leaving you. No, unless it's, you know, warranted and necessary, then that's different. But if we can leave that mother and baby undisturbed, that's such an important time. And not only that, um, a lot of research is now coming out about the baby's microbiome and how that exposure to their mother at the, at, on their chest is like their first introduction to them. It's influencing their microbiome from yeah. their mother. So it's really important to not disturb that if we can. 
So is there any way of a woman knowing if their place is going to be an intervention type one or is it just asking questions? And- asking questions. I uh, would talk to, yeah, talk to your midwife or your obstetrician or wherever you're birthing and discussing what their practices are around that. And also keep in mind that certain medications can affect breastfeeding as well from the birth, even epidurals. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of, um, most anaesthetists will say, no, that doesn't affect it, but it actually does. And it does affect the baby. So we need to keep that in mind as well. Mm, that's an important yeah. one. So um, getting the correct latch is obviously very important and not having the right latch is a cause of pain. How do we know, can you describe what the right latch is and, and how should it feel? Yeah, it's really, it's probably the most important aspect, getting the right attachment and position at the breast. Um, I really need to make up like a song or a jingle or something so women will remember it. <laughs> that would be my next. We want to hear this on the next time we talk. (laughs) I will have it prepared. Um, Yeah, so getting the right latch takes time. It takes a lot of time because you've never breastfed before. Um, Yes, breastfeeding is natural, but it's a very much learnt skill. So it's about being patient with your baby, being patient with yourself, because it is a timely, timely thing to get right. Um, so, but what you want to make sure we're doing is putting your baby right up against your chest. So there's no gap between you and your baby. Um, the most sustainable hold is called the cradle hold. Um, and that's what we always try and facilitate women to do from the get go. So, uh, I'll try and just describe it. it. And, <laughs> so essentially it's the same arm, the same breast that's going around the baby's back. And you really want the heel of your palm to be supporting a baby's shoulder blades and a nice flat, firm um, hand along their back. So we want their chin to be extended into the breast. So then, you know, you're in that drinking position because they cannot swallow. You can't swallow like this. So look at where their chin is in relation to the breast. So there has to be an extension. If their nose is like diving into the breast, you know that they're not going to be able to facilitate a nice open wide mouth. So you really want that position, that stability there through your hand is all they need against your body. And then your spare hand, okay, that can come around and essentially especially if women have flat nipples, which I know we're going to talk about, you can sort of shape the breast a little bit to exaggerate that hole because it's called breastfeeding. It's not nipple feeding. And quite often that's the most common issue is the baby's just got a really shallow latch. It's not actually getting onto that nice deep areola and breast tissue. So we really want to sort of tilt the breast tissue back because you're actually going to be offering the underside of the breast where the areola is. And then sort of aiming the baby's, uh, aiming your nipple toward the baby's um, top lip or nose even. And if you can tickle their nose and their top lip, they actually will open up their mouth nice and wide. And then once they've done that, you can really help them on to facilitate a nice deep attachment. Um, you'll know it's right if it's not painful. It can be quite you know overwhelming at first because you're like, Jesus, they've got a strong vacuum. They've got a strong suck. And most women will say that, they'll be like, wow, <laughs> is this normal? It's very strong. So as long as it's not painful or pinchy, then you know you've got it right. If you start feeding and you think, oh, gosh, that's actually feeling a bit sore, don't persist with it because you're going to end up with nipple trauma. Um, so what you can do is pop one of your fingers in the baby's corner of the baby's mouth, break the suction and take them off the breast and try again, okay, because that's the number one thing. 
probably the num- most common breastfeeding adjustment I make to women is their their babies are too far over the, onto the breast. They need to be more central, like bring them across so their chin goes into that extension. Yeah, and it's only a little micro-adjustment, but it makes a world of difference. And often most women will say to me, I feel so much better. Yeah. <laughs> Very simple, but... That's um, a really good visual that I hadn't thought of. When we drink water, we, we yeah, tilt, tilt our heads back and it, you can't really do it when your no, head's you tilted forward. you can't physically swallow when no. your chin is down, so they have to be in that position. Mm. And trying to remember to break at the seal and reattach if it's not mm. feeling right. I, I also remember thinking, oh, he's on. Because, you know, you didn't want to get on and I'll be like, oh, I'll just persist because he's on. That's but, exactly right. That's yeah. what a lot of women do. He's but, on and he's happy. I'll just continue. Yeah, then you have a nice big sore and you're just, like, ah, toy curling. Mm-hmm. So let's go into the flat nipple while we are mm. on that point. Flat nipples can sometimes make it more challenging. Firstly, is it always going to be a challenge for someone with a flat nipple to no, not feed? Necessarily, it's honestly about the mother and the baby dyad. So there's a really beautiful expression I love, and it's you don't. There's no such thing as a baby. There is a mother and a baby. So it's about the two and how they work together. So it's about the baby's anatomy and abilities, and it's about the woman's anatomy, and everyone's different. So doesn't necessarily mean if you've got flat nipples you're going to have issues but it certainly can increase the likelihood that you will so it's about having some good sort of ideas going into it um what can help you facilitate a a nice attachment regardless Mm -hmm. some women even have inverted nipples you know so there are lots of different things you can consider if you do have some flat nipples obviously seek early support from a ibclc and you can do some sort of shaping of the breast, even with your hands or with a breast pump for a few minutes before you attach your baby to try and avert the nipple a little bit before putting your baby to the breast. And that often can be a little bit beneficial. You might need to, like I said, with that hold, you like exaggerating the shape of the breast. So sort of, it's called the scissor hold where you get two fingers either side of the areola and really exaggerate that shape, sort of like it's a hamburger. That's what you want to imagine. Um, really focusing on that and really exaggerating that shape can be a really good thing. Um, and also there are those beautiful nipple shields that can be really helpful, but we don't introduce them until your milk is in. Ah, uh, okay. So you, it can take how long, like five to? It varies from woman to woman, okay. usually on average like three to four days. Okay. I found nipple shields so frustrating myself, but I, yeah, I've heard lots of people that found them to be very good. I just couldn't get it to bloody stay on did you invert it before yeah Yeah. i tried all the tricks and just couldn't but we had lots of things going on it's it's also about your your anatomy as well and your breast shape sometimes Mm -hmm. depending on the shape of your breasts and where the nipples are situated can make them impossible to stay on but yeah well you sort of think once the baby's been feeding for a little while a flat nipple will never be a flat nipple again They kind of always eventually kind of pull it out. They do, they do, they do, especially um, after a per- like period of time. I see women, like, they come back and say, look, look at these. So, he's done a great job of bringing them out. So, yeah, it certainly can improve over time. But, like I said, everyone's different. So, And then the second time round, if you were to do it again, can, can the nibbles go back and then you have the same problems again or um, would the journey 
hopefully be better the next time. Oh, that's a tricky one because, yeah, they're all different. But I suppose the second time around, you're a little bit more familiar on what works for you. Yeah, okay. Um, But, again, every baby is so different Mm. Um, as long as you seek that early support is probably my best best suggestion. And is there anything that can um, affect a good latch? So you sort of said the thing about the nipple shields with the the supply, but something like is dummies, bottles, is anything else that can kind of like impact a Um, good attachment? Yeah, look, we try and hold off on introducing bottles and teats and things like that if we can and and dummies. But, you know, look, I feel like we put too much pressure on women because they're so fearful that if they do, it's all going to go pear-shaped. But in the right situation, you know, it's, it's absolutely okay. I don't, I don't like women feeling too pressured to do that. But, yes, so we try and say hold off on introducing any additional supplements if you can, like formula, unless it's medically warranted or indicated. Medications and things like that, certain medications you're taking or that the baby might have been exposed to in, in you know, pregnancy or in um, labour and birth. You know, they can be quite sleepy, jaundiced babies, you know, because they're quite sleepy and they don't often do the best job at the breast. Um, something I tell all new mums to be to be mindful of is that even a term baby born is often really sleepy for the first couple of weeks and they're not the best feeders. <laughs> so it's really important to identify when they have fallen asleep, when they're not doing that nutritive sucking and swallowing and they're just having a boob nap. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, <laughs> it's another thing to do. Um, but we do want to be encouraging them to feed effectively and efficiently while they're there, you know, for them and for your breast milk supply. Because the way that breast milk supply works is by frequent and effective removal of the milk. So if your baby's only taking a little bit and a little bit and a little bit, it's not really going to be stimulating your breast as they need. Okay, so not sending sending those signals to make the milk that you need for your baby. So you've kind of touched on it a little bit there with improving supply. Some women don't get a great supply and mm. there's sometimes they have to have medication to improve their supply. You said earlier on that the supply might be affected if they weren't put straight on during mm-hmm. the golden hour, mm-hmm. demand supply kind of issues. What are other reasons why their supply might not be great? Lots and lots of reasons, but there's two different types. So is it a perceived low milk supply or is it an actual low milk supply? Because a lot of women will come to us saying, I've got a low milk supply, I need to do this. But actually, when you look at that, they've got an amazing supply. So we need to sort of just, you know, understand what the situation is first. But for some women, it can be related to their, their anatomy. They might have insufficient glandular tissue. They may have had previous breast surgeries that can affect their milk supply, such as augmentation and breast reductions and things like that. (laughs) It might be the fact that they've had a significant postpartum hemorrhage, which can have an implication on your breast milk supply and certain uh, physical conditions as well that can affect their milk supply, especially if women are following a routine as opposed to following their baby that can also reduce their breast milk supply. So it's really important to feed your baby on demand and observing their feeding cues. Um, minimum feeding for a newborn is that, uh, around 8 to 12 feeds in a 24-hour period, day and night. Your breasts don't switch off at night, unfortunately, and that's actually a really important time to feed your baby for your breast milk supply. Your prolactin level is highest at night, which is a hormone responsible for producing the milk. So hence why it is important to stimulate breast day and night. 
Mm. It's a tough gig, ladies, but really you've got to do it. <laughs> I wish I could say, no, sleep all night, you'll be fine. Um, there are other reasons such as what if you, it's called the top-up trap. Okay. You might have heard of it. No. So some women start topping up their babies because they think that their baby has, you know, or you have a low milk supply in your baby. So it's top up enough. with formula. With formula. And that in itself is just a, a, you know, a vicious cycle and it will just lower and lower your supply over and over again. Um, there are medications that you can take to help increase milk supply. I'm sure you're aware of them, <laughs> being a pharmacist. Um, but you definitely need to seek IBCLC to support before that decision is made to see if it's warranted. You can't just go popping a pill because you think it might be helpful. So definitely seek support early if you feel like you're, you may have some supply issues. Yeah, so those apps that try to put baby on a schedule, <gasps> a climber, yeah, but no, feeding schedule, sleep schedule, they can... Um, they're really dangerous. Yeah, it sounds like it. They are. And there's so many books out there, popular books circulating that suggest women feed exactly a number of minutes. So 13 minutes on the right, 12 minutes on the left. It's just, it actually doesn't make any sense. Every woman's breast milk storage capacity is different. You know, one meal, one woman could store 150 mils per breast, another 60 mils. So that baby wouldn't need to be fed as frequently and that baby wouldn't, you know, need more frequent feeds. So if there's any of those books that you're coming across or any of that information, you need to just push that to the side and really follow your baby's leads. So can you feed a baby too much on the boob? No. Just pop the them on there? No. Put them on. Yeah. What was yeah. that saying that you if said before? Doubt, whip it out. <laughs> That's not my <laughs> saying, but I do like to say it. <laughs> the milk Meg, um, she's another lactation consultant, she, um, she uses that spray is often and I love it. <laughs> it's good if you, yeah, if you're not sure if your baby's upset or crying, always try and offer the boob. It's um, often can just settle things. Yeah. So I remember f- f- this is a, qu- a question I had when I was feeding. I um, was getting a bit of a sore on one of my nipples. Mm. And so I found it really uncomfortable, obviously, and painful to feed on that side. And I was always quite reluctant. Can you just feed on off of one boob while you're giving the other one a bit of a rest? Mm, Absolutely. And you can do that to both breasts if they um, are damaged. So if any woman has um, damaged or sore nipples and, you know, putting the baby to your breast makes your toes curl and you just want to cry at the thought of it, then you really need to rest and express those nipples because that's, that's not really normal, okay? And you really need to seek good support and see why is this happening? It shouldn't be happening. So what can we do to help this? Um, so the first step is it's called yeah, resting and expressing and um, using an electric breast pump, ideally, a double if you've got one, and expressing your breast milk as you would the times that your baby would feed. And you can do that obviously by you know breastfeeding on the breast that's comfortable and expressing on the other breast. But some women, for that depends on what stage you're at in your breastfeeding journey as well, some babies will only feed from one side per feed as they start to get older. Um, but in the early stages, you really do need to be stimulating both breasts okay. for your supply. Yeah. So, yeah, as they're getting older, they might get enough of a big feed off of one That's and right. they just not really want to be on the other one. That's right. They might go on yeah. for like a second and be like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> and so do you always need to offer both or do you just go with how you're feeling? Yeah, so in the early stages, you absolutely need to offer both breasts per feed um, until your milk supply is established and your feeding um, 
essentially is established your baby's gaining weight and things like that so i'll tell you what a newborn baby does because okay. <laughs> it's very different to an older baby which you have <laughs> yes <laughs> oh that is so varied now yeah. <laughs> yeah so a newborn baby like i said they're very sleepy and even more so if they're in earlier gestation even 38 weeks 37 weeks they're what's called a late preterm baby and we often find that these babies do tend to struggle for the first couple of weeks so they might need additional support and you might need a bit more support there just for those couple of weeks. But in saying that, um, yes, a term baby will get onto the breast. They'll have maybe five or so minutes of that nice nutritive suck swallow. And then they'll start to slowly fall asleep. And it's really important to monitor that because often we're on our phones. We're too busy. We're not really paying attention to what our babies are doing at the breast. So, Paying attention, slowing down, minimizing visitors, especially within that, you know, that beautiful first few weeks. Recognizing once they've slowed down and doing some really beautiful breast compressions to help that milk flow happening. And quite often the baby will pick up and respond and do, you know, more um, nutritive sucking and swallowing. And once they've sort of done that again and fallen asleep again, then you can break the suction gently, sit them up on your lap, wake them up a little bit. Maybe that's a good time to change the nappy. Depending on how the breast is feeling, you might need to put them back onto that breast. So if it's still quite full, you know, or uncomfortable, put the baby back onto that breast. And until that's relatively softened and comfortable, then you're going to sit them up on your lap again, burp them, put them back to the other breast. Now, not all babies will burp, but it's essentially just a, it's just a technique to wake them up okay. before offering the other side. So there's a beautiful lactation consultant I work with who uses the um, phrase, you've got to offer them appetizer entree, main dessert. So it was a way of remembering that we often need to just keep offering the breasts a couple of times per feed, make them active in their feed, make them efficient in the time that they are at the breast. Because you've got to remember that when a baby is against your breast and on your body, that is home to them. That is their favorite place to be in the world. So if you allowed them to be, they would be there all day. But what we need to be mindful of is that they're actually feeding effectively when they're there. Yes, especially if you're like, uh, my little man again was a very um, lazy feeder, I mm-hmm. suppose, like you just said in those early days, always wanting to fall asleep and um, trying to wake up. So some good techniques, like you said, then were to um, pop them up mm-hmm. and um, even do a nappy change is there any other little techniques you can do to keep them awake during the feed (laughs) um yeah i actually do a little um elbow pop so once they're nice and asleep you just pop your hand under the elbow lift it up a little bit and pop it down and that might wake up a little bit as well okay like a little startle (laughs) startle. yeah keep it going let's go now just into mastitis because i think sort of where we're heading is potentially some things to prevent mastitis Mm. mastitis obviously is um in infection and inflammation in the breast tissue and it's commonly caused from ducts being not emptied correctly is that Mm. right would you explain that yeah that's right so it's an inflammation in the breast tissue because resulting from insufficient milk removal and you know blocked milk ducts so we first and foremost we need to make sure that your baby is attaching and feeding well at the breast if that's happening if you notice that often it's you notice a tinge of redness on the breast first you need to get that looked at straight away if that sort of appears and um, you may then develop symptoms like like you would a cold or you know a flu you feel a bit run down you might just start to develop a temperature shaky a bit weak um, you need to be seeing asap yeah within those few hours because it can 
come on so quickly. Uh, okay. So if you notice a little bit of a warm spot, it could sort of develop even within that day. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Is there anything you can do straight away when you notice a, a hot spot? Yeah. So applying a cold pack from the fridge, not from the freezer is really important. Um, two women put too many women put heat on their breasts and it's actually cold okay. because cold is going to reduce that level of inflammation in the breast tissue and allow the milk to flow more freely through the ducts. Okay, they're rather than a heat, we're going to be introducing more blood flow to the area. So always cold. Um, you can take, if you can, you can take some neurofin anti-inflammatories to help reduce that inflammation process. Um, but ultimately, it's about effectively removing the milk and effectively draining them properly. So depending on what's going on with your baby, you may or may not need to introduce some expressing. Um, with some nice gentle massage and stroking and things like that around that area down towards the nipple to, to drain it properly. Um, but yeah, like I said, you really need to be seen that day. Yeah. Cause it's also hard to know if it's like glands or like <laughs> if it's a blocked duct yeah. or, you know, if you're engorged or there's so many things going on in there and, and everyone's so anatomy is different. Yeah. You're like, what is this? I know. Mm. I know. It's really hard. And that's why I say to women, you need to become familiar with your breasts in pregnancy. Quite often women will start breastfeeding because you're, you know, then touching and feeling your breasts all day, every day, but they don't know what's new and what's normal for them and their anatomy. Some are quite dense, their breasts, some can feel quite nodulary. So really it should start in pregnancy, it should actually start anytime. As a woman, you need to be doing regular breast exams. But yeah, ideally for you and your breastfeeding journey, you're going to benefit from knowing what's normal for you as a baseline. Yeah. Mm. But in terms of preventing, um, it's about that, again, the frequent and effective removal of the milk at those regular intervals. So some women may wake up one morning if their babies, you know, slept six or seven hours and they might go, oh my gosh, what's happened to my breast? Especially so, if they've normally been up feeding every right. hour or two and then they do a long stint for some yeah. reason. And some women are more prone to mastitis than others. So if you've had mastitis previously, unfortunately, you're more likely to get it the second time around. It's really unfortunate. And some women are really sensitive to any firm pressure on their breasts. So even some of the nursing bras can be too restrictive for you. Always go loosey-goosey with bras. Like, the softer, the better for nursing. Okay, so no underwire. Oh, God. No underwire. But so uncomfortable. Just, <laughs> even just some of the regular nursing bras you buy, they are just too tight across the outer aspect of the breast. So some women can be really sensitive to that. Yeah, ideally making sure your breasts are really well drained, slow down and rest because another risk factor for mastitis is stress. So if you are becoming a little bit too overwhelmed, maybe you're doing too much, you're feeling quite run down, that's a way of your body sort of telling you, hey, you need to slow down a little bit. Wow, that is definitely a bit of a trick for mums to know how to rest and relax. And um, that's often the case that we put our, our own health second we do don't we or third it depends on how many children you've got right. that's right and always remember to alternate which breast you um, offer first okay yeah of course so one doesn't get too important that's right yeah. well you have just provided so much valuable information and all of this stuff obviously are common feeding things that can happen more in the early days mm-hmm. newborny sort of stage we'll have to get you on again to tell about all the other bits later it's too much <laughs> there is so much to remember and i think like you said just be kind to yourself 
mums because um, it's a lot. There's a lot to get through. And I think we all do experience a bit of anxiety and stress and having a pressure to be a certain way or be nailing it. I don't think any mums nail it. No, some just make it look like they are more better than others. But that's exactly right. Western culture does not support new mothers. We just don't, you know, like in so many ways. So, you know, baby showers where we provide all these presents to the baby. And what happens when you visit a new mum? Typically you'll bring her flowers or a new baby wrap or something like that. You know, what's that all about? We Mm -hmm. need to be supporting the mother. Bring some food. Bring a home-cooked meal. Do a load of washing while you're there and see yourself out. So if you happen to see the mum and baby, you know, that's that's just an added bonus. But, yeah, we don't really have enough sort of um, understanding and acknowledgement of what women and what mums and families need. And, you know, and all this, you know, you get back to your post-birth, your, your pre-baby body, all this pressure and bullshit. Like, I don't think you can ever get back to a pre-baby body. And who would want to? Because our bodies have just done the most amazing bloody thing ever. Mm-hmm. It's a new body. If you're a new person, you've stepped into motherhood. <laughs> so society's expecting us to look like we haven't got children or we haven't just given birth, like it's a bad thing. I just, yeah, so a lot of unrealistic expectations are out there on mums and, um, yeah, it's, it's really, it is hard, especially if you don't have that support network around you. Mm. Um, but also knowing what it is you need. Quite often, if you have the support, but you don't know exactly what you need because it's also new to you. So I think it should start in pregnancy. Everything should start in pregnancy. You shouldn't be thinking about breastfeeding once your baby is here. You need to have that preparation beforehand. Yeah. Really, especially the conversation with your partner about how you're going to support each other to, to help this and to help you to make it work. How are we going to make this transition period into parenting a smooth one for us? You're recovering from childbirth, huge, let alone looking after a new baby, trying to nourish them the best you can and running on very minimal sleep in the meantime. So how are you going to make this all work? Yeah, we have um, so much time and energy and focus that we put into getting the birth, that's right. getting this ideal birth, which having knowledge is power and that's amazing and having some idea of what you want so that you feel empowered with your birth. But, you know, births will do what births will do. That's right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, probably having a bit more preparation about what you just said, what you're going to do in those early days and how you're going to get through. Mm-hmm. Where can people get support around that stuff? and round breastfeeding questions. So we're going to hear where they can find you. But mm. before that, like, is there other like hotlines and things that if they're, you know, middle of the night and they need to call someone? Yeah. Don't call me at 2am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so what's the hotline to Sarah? <laughs> I don't do on call work anymore. Um, so look, there absolutely is some amazing support systems out there. And also it depends on where you were giving birth. A lot of hospitals and centers around. And also if you go down a private midwife path, they will all have their own sort of um, resources and services. So it's important to know what is available to you for where you are birthing your baby. And also considering booking into a breastfeeding and uh, parenting class when you are pregnant. 
and making sure your partner attends that with you because they've found that one of the number one influencing factors on breastfeeding success is partner support. So, yeah, it is very, very important for them to attend. Um, or you can see me antenatally. I do a lot of um, antenatal consultations with couples yeah. uh, in pregnancy, so set them up for well, success. I was going to say, so do you have sort of like um, a bit of a program or a meeting that you do with couples so that they can get the foundations and a plan for That's right. early parenting? Yeah, yeah. So I do do um, classes um, out of Restful Waters in Perth. Um, it's a beautiful wellness centre. Um, otherwise, I do them in their home if they want to do a bit more privately, which a lot of people do at the moment with the COVID. Otherwise, the Australian Breastfeeding Association is the most amazing resource. Their website is all evidence-based information. It's the only place you should look ever. Don't ever Google anything to do with breastfeeding. You'll get some terrible advice and terrible information. So always there. And they've got their 24-hour number as well. So you can get um, a lactation-trained professional on the end of the flight. Actually, no, they're volunteers, but they are lactation-trained and they're still quite amazing um, to have that support and that service there for you. If you want a lactation consultant... Do you only ever seek a lactation consultant after if you're having problems or do you, can you see a LC beforehand or how do people find lactation consultants? Yeah, it's it's honestly about knowing where to look. Um, There is the Australian Lactation Consultant website where a lot of um, local to you lactation consultants are listed. So you can often put in um, your location and then they'll come up but I do telehealth appointments with women over east. I've come down here and done consult, consults down here and when I'm on holiday. So, yeah, it really depends um, on where you're located as to um, who and what is around you. And finding that person that's, you know, suited to you. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you did your consult with me over the phone and it was um, good because you can still, you have so many visual um, things that you were able to yeah. explain that still gave me a really good understanding of what I had to do. And the hamburger definitely helped me the idea of that. It's lunchtime. And so where can people find you, Sarah, if they want to seek your help? Um, my Instagram, I suppose, mindfulmothering underscore Perth. Um, but like I said, I'm available to anyone and everywhere they are. Um, otherwise my website is www.mindfulmothering.com.au. I had to think about that. Um, (laughs) we put all of that into the show notes anyway, so people can find you easily and the other links that you mentioned. Thank you so much, Sarah, for having a chat with me and sharing all of this fabulous knowledge. Mm-hmm. I think this would be a good one for people who are pregnant to listen to or maybe in those early days. Um, listening to a podcast is much easier when you've got your hands full with a little bubba. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for listening to Unscripted with Alex. This show was brought to you by Batika Co.